I was on a plane to San Francisco to visit my daughter Alexandra, her husband Ryan, and to babysit my new grandson Maxwell. I couldn't be more excited. I took this time to read a book called Leap into the Mind of a Suicide. It's the story of a woman who struggled with her mental health since she was a child, and how she felt the only way out was to commit suicide. At age 18, she jumps from her eight-floor balcony, only a few feet away from her father. Somehow she survives, but she will live with a physical disability the rest of her life. A life where she now feels profoundly compelled to share her story so that she can speak for others who are lost forever to suicide while opening our eyes to what it means to reach that dark point where one willingly chooses death over life. Her name is Nancy Shaw, and by listening to her story of trauma and tragedy, laddering to transformation, I think we're gifted with context and understanding that can positively impact any life, including our own. Do you feel lonely and empty inside, even though you have friends and you party all the time? This physical feeling just won't shake off. When I was really depressed to a point of suicide, I experienced a really strange feeling. I felt like I was an empty shell. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Nancy Shaw, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you for having me. Nancy, I'd love to begin with where you are today with your life. And if you could, to read this paragraph from the end of your book. I'm now an organizer of an online mental health support group. We started during the pandemic, and now we have members from all over the world. We have a prayer meeting every day, and we have a weekly support meeting to share stories of recovery. I used to regret about my suicide attempt. I used to think that I would always live with that regret for the rest of my life. But over the years, good things and good people crossed my path as a result. I now think that this whole experience is a blessing in disguise. I learned about forgiveness and patience, and I became a joyful and positive person, uh, full of positive energy. That's where I am today. Nancy, I read every word of your book, and as a father of two daughters, I was torn. First, to have the utmost empathy for you and your struggles, but also for your parents' pain, knowing that their only child was willing to trade death for her life, and the 24 hours a day they committed to their life to saving yours. I realize, I think, that what your book is all about is that mental illness isn't something that's easy to treat, and its symptoms extend beyond the individual to all who love them. So I want to spend some time talking about that and learning more about what brought you to this point at such a young age. Take me back to your childhood when you first knew that you're beginning to struggle with your mental health. So when I was an infant, I was one of those babies that cried all the time. It was really hard to put me to sleep. In 80% of my baby photos, I look anxious and fearful. That was my default expression. When I was a kid, I was described as neurotic and introverted. I had a lot of phobias, um, including spiders, bugs, darkness, and ironically, death. My sleep was always bad. I started to have insomnia in grade five, not being able to sleep at all over nothing. Um, I was also very negative, 
predicting every situation in its worst case scenario. However, I didn't think at the time that I was different from everyone else because I was not supposed, I was not able to know what normal feels like. But now that I have been completely healed and transformed, I realized that who I used to be, my experience of being a human during the first 22 years of my life, I was already mentally ill. I already had those early signs of mental illness. And from your parents' point of view, how did they come to terms with it? Because back then, it wasn't something that we discussed. It was always just, you know, they're having a bad day or she's maybe a little bit different. How did they try to come to terms with, even at a young age, that you were having so much struggle? At that time, my struggle was internal. I was still function functional in every way. My mark was good in school and they didn't think I was different. So they didn't really try or intervene in any way. They just thought that this was a introverted child. That was all. And at age 13, you know, already carrying the sort of baggage of all these phobias that you're dealing with, you moved to Canada. What was that like? They came because the academic competition in China was furious. I failed to make it into a prominent junior high school. So my future was not very bright. And that was the main reason my parents wanted to immigrate to Canada. They were already in their 40s, not exactly in their primed. Prior to that point, they had a white collar job in China. But after coming to Canada, they had to work uh, as factory workers at first. It was difficult for them physically. I was always a very sensitive and neurotic person by nature. So in the beginning, my English was very minimum. Um, I had low self-esteem. For newcomers, it's common for us to experience discrimination or prejudice. Perhaps another person in the same shoes would not care, but because I was extra sensitive, it would take me longer to get over a negative encounter. What I was surprised in your book is that this bullying wasn't just people born in Canada, but other Chinese who might identify as being Taiwanese or from Hong Kong also weren't willing to accept you. I wouldn't say it was bullying. It was more like rejection because we certainly wanted to be friends with them since we're all Chinese. But at the time, China, people coming from mainland China was, um, they were poor, um, they didn't dress nicely. So judging by our appearance or style, um, we felt like we were kind of inferior to them. Um, but that was all in grade eight. People were kids. But now I have many friends who come from Taiwan and Hong Kong. It's much different now. How did your mental health change from that time that you came to Canada? You talked about, you know, you didn't have a great command of the English language and obviously you lack some self-esteem. What are the other demons that you're talking about earlier? The phobias, the lack of sleep? So I found it difficult to, to fall asleep. Um, I found the pace of my thoughts was always very fast. I was overthinking all the time. And feelings of embarrassment, anger, and sadness were overwhelming at times. At age 16, there was an incident where I was crying over a very small fight between myself and a classmate. And I cried so hard to the point where I suddenly felt like I wanted to kill myself. It caught me by surprise because even then I knew it was not a big deal. 
So that was the first time I experienced a suicidal feeling. And I made a prophecy. I said to my mom, I think I will kill myself one day. And I thought maybe when I'm much older, when I experience a major obstacle in life, but it actually happened a year later. And that's at age 18, I guess. And you start dating for the first time. I mean, that must have, even though it was a short time for you, it must have brought a lot of happiness to you that you were starting to feel like you belonged and other people could see all the great things you offered. Yes. At the time, I think there were uh, young couples in high school uh, everywhere. So I was jealous of them. I was eager to also have my um, maybe first boyfriend. So I was dating someone in my school. And during that time, I was extremely obsessed and full of mental energy all the time. And that really took away my sleep. And my grade also dropped dramatically. But the, rela- the relationship only lasts about four weeks. And thinking back, it wasn't a meaningful relationship, but it happened at a time when I was already about to start my clinical depression. Um, it only needed to have a trigger for it, and that was the trigger. And that trigger leads you down a very dark tunnel, doesn't it? I started to have severe insomnia. I was not able to sleep at all. Even taking five sl- sleeping pills was not helpful. The headache was unbearable. And on top of that, I had severe panic attacks and feelings of anxiety. Um, those feelings were very physiological in nature. And before long, I lost the ability to feel hunger and thirst. And during my latter days, I couldn't even feel if I wanted to go to the bathroom. Uh, it was a complete debilitation of every function of my brain. Except memory, I could still remember everything. So the insomnia lasted about two months. Imagine not sleeping at all for two months. I was literally uh, walking dead before my suicide attempt. And, you know, you talk about, and I thought this is such a powerful part of the book, Leap, was when you talk about in every situation you're in, driving with your father, uh, looking at a balcony or bridge, subway tracks, that you're not seeing these things as infrastructure or just normal circumstance. You're almost seeing these things as props to end your life. The feeling of wanting to die was constant um, because I was unable to sleep at all. So literally 24-7, it was I was tormented by suicidal ideologies and those thoughts and feelings were so strong and out of control. And it became a biological need to die stronger than the need for food and water. And at one point, I even tried to kill my dad because he was protecting me from hurting myself. And I thought I needed to get rid of my parents first in order to kill myself. Um, so I was that sick. I was that um, cold-blooded. It's interesting that when I read your book, Leap into the Mind of a Suicide, and even listening to you today, it's almost when you describe those points, you're describing it as a third person. It's not you. It's It's this person that's taken over your brain wants to engineer all this stuff so that you can end your life. Yes. At the time, I certainly felt like there was someone living inside of my head and feeding me with negative thoughts, condemnation, and reminding me of my shamefulness and embarrassment and telling me that I will have no future. Yeah, looking back, I would say it was definitely demonic in nature. And your parents are quite desperate. They send you on 
a vacation, or at least to try to get you into different circumstances with different people. And that doesn't work out. And then they believe that maybe the next best way to saving your life is to commit you. But before we get to what happens, tell me a little bit about the fortune teller, because it was a small part of your book, but I think it was quite significant part of your life. We came to Canada in 1998, which was the year we were preparing to come and we were in the process of applying. And my dad was walking on the street one day and a fortune teller stopped him and wanted to do business with my dad. My dad said no because he didn't believe in it. Meanwhile, his friends were like, I wanted to know my future. Tell me. Um, the fortune teller was like, I only wanted to do business with him. So my dad found him interesting. So he said, okay. Um, the fortune teller told my dad that 1998 is a turning point for you, which is true because we are about to come to Canada. Then he said, when you turn 45 years old, something will happen to your child. I don't know what it is, but something will happen. Uh, my dad didn't tell us about it because he didn't believe in it until my first suicide attempt. He remembered the prophecy. And sure enough, four days after his 45th birthday, I jumped from the balcony. And you describe this as being eight stories up. Your parents had locked this balcony because they know that you'd already once perched yourself on the edge. But you somehow convinced your dad to open it, saying you just need some fresh air. And then you jump. Mm-hmm. And your dad's only a few feet away. I can't imagine being a father and seeing that. I can't imagine, obviously, being you and doing that. But what do you remember of that time? That I felt a sense of relief when I was finally able to break free from my parents. But I only last about three or four seconds because when I landed, I did not die. I was really mad. I still remember the expression on my dad's face when I thought that was probably the last thing I saw in this world. And that really um, made me feel sorry for him. But I really didn't have much love and uh, and sympathy for my parents at the time because I was so sick. I lost the ability to feel love. So at that very moment on that day, I didn't really care how they felt. And things start to change a little bit in hospital. Mm -hmm. Your life survived a fall of eight stories, but you permanently damaged your body. So I sustained a spinal cord injury at a level of T12, L1, and L2, um, which is your the same level as your belly button. So I was instantly paralyzed. The moment I landed, I knew I was paralyzed and I would not be able to walk again. But I didn't lose consciousness because I didn't have a brain injury. Um, the paramedics arrived and measured my vital signs and found out they were all normal. So I didn't have a life-threatening injury. On my way to the hospital, they didn't even sound the siren. And why do you think they did that? I think it was because, first of all, I wasn't, I was, I wasn't going to die. They, they knew that I would be okay. And you're in the hospital. What kind of thoughts are going through your mind? I was placed on suicide watch. I was begging everyone to kill me. Um, everyone who walked by my bedside, I was begging them to 
help me commit suicide. And I promised myself once I was able to, I would continue to do it until I'm successful. But a turning point in your life when you're in that hospital, what happens when you suddenly look at your dad and instead of having no empathy for him, you say, I'm sorry, dad, and I love you? After I was hospitalized, I saw my psychiatrist for the first time. He was my doctor for the next 10 years, and he began to medicate me. He put me on a whole bunch of medication for my mental health condition. I was able to sleep about two or three weeks later. So as the pattern of my sleep was restored, I felt like my depression got much better. So there was one day my dad came to visit me. He said that uh, my parents would completely broken. He described what they were going through. And all of a sudden, I began to cry. Because prior to that point, I couldn't even cry anymore. I didn't have any human emotions. I didn't care or love for them. So when I began to cry, that was a turning point because I could feel like a human again. That's a beautiful part of your story. And, and again, with empathy, I'm thinking of this person who did everything to end their life, ends up paralyzed, but still finds a way to start, whether it's through the medicine you were given, the conversations you had with your doctor, but that you learn to feel and cry. And I thought that was such a wonderful silver lining in a dark cloud that you could start feeling again. Was it temporary or is that something you started feeling was coming back inside you? Yes, the feeling came back. But during the first few years, it was a sadness and depressed feeling most of the time. It was a normal part of being human. I guess it was better than emotionless, right? And talk to me about Aaron, because part of this path back for you was you got on involved, I guess, in a dating app for people that have disabilities. And you met someone that really that you write about and very fondly. That was the biggest turning point in my journey. Uh, this was in 2007, four years post-injury. I was still in a very bad shape physically and mentally. I was really lonely. I felt like a loser. I didn't have much confidence making friends in real life. And no one would take me seriously. So therefore, I went online and wanted to feel less lonely. So Aaron, um, not his real name, was someone that I met on this dating app for people with disabilities. And we talked for three months, and surprisingly, he said that he wanted to meet me in person because he liked me. He did come to Toronto, and we started our long-distance relationship. Um, he really turned my life around because during those three months, I suddenly had the motivation to change myself for the better. I started exercising and I started to eat healthier. And I kind of came out of my shell a bit. And I focused less on my internal feelings and was busy with my self-improvement. So although we didn't last long, it was life-changing. And by the end of it, I was in a much better place physically and mentally. And at the end of your book, you describe mental illness as being so difficult to cure and often an experimentation. What did you mean by that? It is a very hard to find the right type of medication and the right dosage. 
Uh, medication can also give us a lot of side effects. At one point, I was over 200 pounds and had acne all over my face. However, I was very compliant during my treatment. I went from one medication to another, sometimes a combination of medications. So for four years, they seemed ineffective in making me happy. But when I found the right medication in 2007, within a month, I woke up one day and just never felt depressed ever again. Um, however, my observation is that people with mental illness do not have the obedience and patience to find the right medication. They give up so easily after experiencing side effects, not knowing that the positive effects far outweigh the side effects. And the side effects are temporary. Uh, once your body is used to it and your mental health improves, you don't need to take a lot of medication to maintain your mental health. When we return, my three takeaways, and then Amy Deacon joins the show to help us understand what's inside the mind of someone that contemplates suicide. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of the radio show and podcast, Chatter That Matters. Did you know that only one in five youth with a mental health illness can get access to the care they need? Well, a big shout out to the RBC Foundation and RBC Future Launch for supporting over 150 youth mental health organizations. And in doing so, they help youth and their families get the care they need and deserve. After somebody just committed suicide, people want to know why. It seems like there has to be a reason for them to kill themselves. And sometimes the reason has to be huge in order to be understandable. This is a big misconception. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Nancy Shaw. She tried to take her life and failed, but in doing so, she lost the use of her legs. She considers what happened to her a gift. Nancy, talk to me about who you are today and what you feel matters most, knowing the journey you've gone through. It's been exactly 20 years since my injury. In 2011, I graduated from the University of Toronto with a psychology major. I then started working at Spinal Cord Injury Ontario to this day. Uh, my job is to create educational and uh, informative videos for people in my community. But I spend more time with my mental health support group. I am a happy person. I'm a joyful person today. Um, I became a Christian after my injury. I realized that my survival was a miracle. And my joy and happiness and being able to talk about this today from a positive light, that is an even greater miracle. So God taught me how to forgive and bless people who hurt me. Um, he taught me how to be patient in suffering. And he gave me joy as my strength. So today, I really want to share my insights on healing and my positive energy with those who are still struggling. So this is my mission for the rest of my life. And what do you think we need to do individually and collectively to address mental health in our society because everything I read and the people I've talked to is that we're at a crisis point. There's a lot of people that are dealing with stress, dealing with anxieties, dealing with uh, suicidal thoughts. Given your context of both 
studying and the circumstances you've lived through? Is there is there an answer? I actually want to share an insight as someone who have been terribly mentally ill. We have all seen in the news on those school shootings and massacres where the gunmen died at the end either by suicide or they were killed by cops. People are always looking for a reasonable motives behind their action. For example, the Vegas shooter, people are still wondering why. For someone who is mentally ill to the point that I was, we're like zombies. Our illness took away our humanity. Um, when it comes to committing suicide, it's actually still hard to do because fearing death is a human nature. So when someone wants to commit suicide, they are in an extreme dilemma. Only one hand, they want to die so badly, but on the other hand, they are still afraid to die. So therefore, suicide by cops is an easy way out. By committing a horrible crime, they invited the cops to kill them, or they felt that they left themselves with no choice but to kill themselves in the end. So of course, there was also the fact that they were jealous of happy people who were better off than they were. And that's why they choose children or concert goers as their targets. So we see that mental health is not just about helping that particular patient. It's also about how to prevent innocent people from being hurt. Because of all those tragedies are, are preventable if people know that mental illness is treatable. Their depression and suicide suicidal state are temporary. People have to be educated about treatment options and follow their treatment plans, even though they don't seem to be effective right away. That is recovery from a physiological aspect. There's also a social aspect, which is more important. When someone is sick with another physical illness, their loved ones will give the extra love and attention. But sometimes when people have a mental illness, people walk away from them. That would make it even more difficult for a patient to rebuild their life. So therefore, socially, we have to provide a loving and caring environment for them to recover. If my parents want this loving to me, I would not be here today. I would not have any anything to live for. Um, there were times when the only reason I don't commit suicide again was because I knew if I die, my parents, their lives would be over as well. And your parents are still with you today? Yes, I still live with my parents. They are my best friends. My dad had cancer two years ago, but he survived and is doing very well right now. Looking back at everything you just said, that they were there to love you, that they sacrificed their white-collar jobs in China to take you to Canada so you could get schooling. Have you reconciled that saying that I don't need to feel guilty because I was mentally unwell and I can now celebrate our love because I'm mentally well? I think um, being Christian, um, we our faith really help us heal to look things from God's perspective. He has a plan. He has a good purpose behind everything. So they're now also very happy and joyful. We really we're really grateful for the fact that we were crushed, but we were never broken. Nancy, do you think that this intervention and you surviving that eight story fall? happen for a reason that you've got a 
a higher purpose in this planet in terms of writing books like Leap into the Mind of a Suicide or just being out there and telling, opening our eyes to mental health? I always, always trying to find a reason behind my suicide attempt. And the fact that I survived that eighth, eighth floor fall, that was a miracle. Even before becoming a Christian, the, the moment I landed, I, I knew that there was, there was a God because at first I thought he was punishing me. He wanted me to survive so I could be punished for the rest of my life. But over the years, I realized that he saved me because he wanted me to know what life is all about, how wonderful life could be. I never knew. I never knew happiness before my suicide attempt. Even though I was able to walk, I was never a happy person throughout my entire life. Have you ever been back in touch with Aaron to tell him the role he played in your... I think he read my book so he would know, but I we don't have any communication right now. Nancy, I always end my show with my three takeaways. What opened my heart when I read Leap, and even more so after t- chatting with you, is this incredible sense of empathy. I think you best framed it when you said, when you're mentally unwell, it takes away your humanity. You just don't act the way people think you're going to act. And the fact that we should open our minds to understanding that as a society and realize that this isn't someone like me. This is someone that's going through, in your case, I couldn't sleep. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to drink. And we just have to be very open to understanding that is reality as it's unfolding. I think the second thing is this incredible journey that you've been on. As you said, it's been 20 years and 20 years ago, you tried to take your life and now you've got a degree and you're helping others and you're helping society come to terms with what's important. Take your medicine, try it, give it a chance. There's ways that you can feel and experience life the way you're doing it. And I think the fact that you've come through these circumstances and changing your world and ours for the better is just is a miracle for all. And the third thing is I just so happy that the awful pain that your parents must have felt and helplessness has now turned into this incredible love affair between the three of you and your spirituality and your humanity. So for all of that and more, thank you for writing Leap into the Mind of Suicide. I think I just want to conclude by saying that mental illness is a medical condition. It's not a psychological condition. It's our brain, the biggest organ in our body. Sorry, maybe not the biggest, most complex organ in our body that is sick, just like any other illnesses in our body. So we should treat it as a medical condition. Uh, it's not something that the patient has control over how they feel or how they think. So medical intervention, or if they're acutely suicidal, take them to a hospital to be hospitalized in a psychiatric ward. This is the first step in suicide prevention. Because when someone is in that desperate state, they are dangerous to themselves and also to other people. So sending them to a hospital is the best way to keep everyone safe. And also during hospitalization, the doctors can find out exactly what kind of condition they they are going through and what is the best treatment plan for that person. So knowing what to do um, as a family member is very important. Nancy, Sean, thank you for uh, being part of Chatter That Matters. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. 
Joining me on this episode of Chatter That Matters is Amy Deacon. She's the founder and CEO of Toronto Wellness Counseling. I want to get rid of the Toronto. I want to call it World Wellness Counseling because you have such an incredible worldview and perspective. And this is one of the hardest shows I've ever done, Nancy Shaw. She wrote a book, Leap Into the Mind of a Suicide. And the first part of the story is her wanting to end her life. And finally, one day convinces her dad to unlock that patio door to get some fresh air that she's feeling much better. And when he does, she literally leaps past him and jumps off an eight-floor balcony, lands, and knows that she's not dead, but she's lost feelings in her legs and becomes a paraplegic. And then to fast forward the story, she realizes that that might be the greatest gift she was given because she found a way to treat her bipolar And by seeing how important her life is, she's now trying to make it important for others. Let's just first of all talk about suicide. This is not an anomaly. This is sadly becoming either an exit strategy or contemplating an exit strategy for so many people. What is going on out there? There really is just this profound desire to escape. There's a profound desire to escape the pain, and we're not quite sure in the moment how to deal with it. We don't really have faith that anything is going to change, and it just feels like this black hole. There's no light, right? I think it makes many of us uncomfortable, and yet it is a conversation that needs to be had because we are seeing an increased rate of of suicide and suicide attempts, especially amongst our, our younger people. And I don't think that it's necessarily one thing that's contributing to this, but we've been through a lot, right? I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with this, but the loneliest generation right now are people between the ages of 18 to 34. And it's particularly bad amongst people who are 18 to 24. And so even though we are you know, just overwhelmed with this illusion of connection, we've never been more lonely. Right. And so people are not developing those meaningful friendships, relationships. They're overwhelmed with images of success and, and, and I would argue almost fake connectedness online where it's, you know, financially, you know, just in terms of our economy, we're going through a hard time and there's a real sense of, of hopelessness and hopelessness is rough enough to deal with at the best of times. But when you're hopeless and you feel alone, that's where things can get reckless. Sometimes we treasure life when we've almost lost it. In the case with Nancy, I mean, she willfully tried to lose it and failed. Ended up in a wheelchair, but she's never been happier. She's become an artist. She's become an influencer to others. She feels she has a higher purpose to life. And she's managed with, you know, having the right therapists and treatments that she can also deal with her mental health. Why does it take a situation like that for people to realize that life isn't a dress rehearsal and why you're here, make the most of it. I think sometimes we don't realize how fragile life is until you do. You don't realize how precious your time here is, your relationships are, how you live your life until it's almost taken away from you. And so it is something, it is a theme that is common when people either, you know, are diagnosed with cancer, develop a chronic health issue, um, have a near-death experience that there's just this sobering awakening of, oh my gosh, here I was moseying on, living my best life, taking every moment for granted. And I, 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 the people that are shook and awakened by that 
typically can't and almost have an allergy to going back to living a life where you just kind of feel like you're going through the motions. And what advice can you give to people to to find a way to treat your life that way? Because when you're healthy and capable, that should be the times that you're really giving the most. And as you said, yet so many people meander. I think that is sometimes the blessing. It's almost like, you know, when, when I was younger and I didn't finish my plate of dinner and my parents would say, oh my gosh, do you not realize that there are children in this other country that have, and you don't appreciate it. But then fast forward the clock and I spent, you know, a couple summers in, in Cambodia volunteering and then you wake up, right? It's almost, you can't appreciate something until you yourself are fully kind of immersed in that. But I think the other kind of example that we can explore without, you know, throwing somebody into a, into a hardship or a traumatic situation Steve Covey has this exercise where he invites people to reflect on their funeral. And when they have passed, what will people say about them? What will be their legacy? What will your friends say? What will your family say? What will your community say? What will your coworkers say? And sometimes it's uncomfortable, but there's something about the conversation around death that provides an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, are we really living? And if it were to go away, would we be good with how we spent our time here? Wow. Amy Deacon, sending you yet another virtual hug because we do these things remotely. But uh, thank you so much for once again uh, bringing it all on Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening. And let's chat soon.